Welcome, everybody. I'm very excited to bring you the first inaugural edition of the new, brand new Stanford Anesthesia Tutorial Podcast. I'm Derek Wu, one of the CA3s and also one of the co-editors of the CA1 Tutorial Handbook, and I'm very excited, very excited to be joined by one of my favorite residents and one of my favorite people, Alex Rodriguez, one of my co-CA3s and one of my co-editors on the CA1 Handbook as well. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Derek. Happy to be here and kick off this tutorial podcast. I'm so happy we were able to get together and record something. And I also wanted to shout out the new CA1s. Today is July 7th, so it was their first day for our CA1s to be in the ORs. Um, hopefully it was a lot of fun. Um, the next coming months are going to be extremely tiring, but I also remember them being some of the most fulfilling months of the entirety of residency. So you all have a lot to look forward to. Yeah, welcome to Stanford. Welcome to the Bay. We're all here for you and all want to see you all succeed. So um, I hope today was great and every day is going to get better and better. And that doesn't stop even through C uh, CA3 year. I'm on OB right now, and Derek is busy at Valley covering some calls, but we're all having a good time. Absolutely. And everybody is going to be so welcoming. Everybody's here to make sure you learn. It's a really friendly environment, and that's honestly what attracted me to Stanford in the first place. So welcome officially. So Derek, what are we talking about today? So I think uh, a good idea for our first podcast would be to go over how to pre-op a patient. Um, I think all of us, at least a lot of the incoming CA1s, have had a lot of experience looking up patients, whether they did their intern year as a transitional year, like I did, or did the categorical medicine year, or a surgery year. We're all used to looking up patients, but now it's a little bit different in that we have to get used to looking up patients in an anesthesia context and learning how to present that information in a coherent and organized fashion to the attending so we can come up with an anesthetic So, Alex, how do you look up or pre-op a patient um, from the point of view of someone who's going to be providing anesthesia? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start and a, and a great question. Um, so I can talk a little bit about how we do it at Stanford. Um, it's not too different from what you'll look at um, from like a medicine intern year, but there are some subtle differences. What I usually do is I start by looking at the OR status board. And I do that for a couple reasons. One, because it's going to tell me where I'm going to be. It's going to tell me what surgeon I'm working with and how many cases I have throughout the day. And you can actually see how long um, each surgeon estimates their case is going to take. So usually I'll write down the patient's name, MRN, date of birth. Um, and often their weight and BMI will all be on that main page, so I can have that done from the get-go. Then I click into each patient's individual chart, and I start with the anesthesia tab. Um, a lot of the Stanford patients will be seen in the anesthesia clinic preoperatively, and they'll have done some of the groundwork for you. And if not, you're going to need to start a pre-op note anyway, and that'll be pre-populated with a lot of information. So for, from there, you'll look at their past medical history, their allergies, uh, any medications that they're taking, um, and most importantly, any prior anesthetics that they've done. Often that'll be um, brought into that note from prior airway exams um, 
and prior intubations or other airway instrumentation that they've had. Also under that anesthesia tab, you can look in the actual anesthetic record if they've been seen at Stanford before. Um, and again, seeing what meds were given, any anesthetic problems, any hemodynamic concerns um, or other concerns. Then usually I'll move on to their labs and imaging. Um, I don't write down labs uh, for every single patient if they're all normal, but I definitely will uh, note uh, abnormalities or I'll write down uh, pertinent uh, coags if we're doing any neuraxial or regional techniques or certainly a hemoglobin or hematocrit if I'm planning on uh, having blood in the room ready to transfuse the patient. And then it's good practice um, to look at any x-rays or airway imaging uh, that has been done before, certainly any EKGs that have been done before because you're going to be monitoring that intraoperatively uh, with the telemetry. And then looking at least at the echo report. Once you've done cardiac, maybe you can take a peek at the actual echo images, but at least the echo report is a good place to start as a CA1. And then lastly, um, before I finish my review of the chart, I'll look at the surgeon's note uh, to see um, what they're doing to see why they're doing it, um, and to see if they have any concerns um, that they note, um, or if there are any um, different paths that they can take intraoperatively once they actually get uh, the patient in the room uh, and examine the patient. Yeah, that all sounds great. That's exactly what I do. And I think the good thing to keep in mind for our new CA1s is that this process might sound pretty familiar, and it should be because you spent an entire intern year essentially looking up patients for an entire year, whether they be consults or new admissions. And honestly, in my opinion, this whole process is really similar um, to looking up any other patient uh, during your intern year. The only other thing to keep in mind is uh, the anesthetic concerns, like any other, as Alex mentioned, any other anesthetic records or charting, and of course, seeing why they're actually being received in the first place. And I'll also just mention as a CA1, this might take a while for each patient. Um, after a busy OR day, it's going to be tiring, um, and it's, it might be one of the last things that, that you want to do, but it's really important. As you progress in your anesthesia training and your anesthesia residency, this will get faster and faster and can even be done uh, during the day if you can uh, locate the attending you might be, be working with tomorrow. Um, so just know that it, it gets uh, faster the, uh, and more efficient the more that you do it. Yeah, when, when I first heard as a CA1 myself that other residents were pre-oping their patients in the OR while other cases were going on, I thought that was absolutely crazy. Ludicrous. And, yeah, and that I would never be able to get to that level. Just because when you're in the OR, especially when you get left alone for the first time, every alarm is something that's like highly concerning, every sound, you're just kind of worried because you're in an unfamiliar environment. And I think that's totally reasonable, and that's an experience that all of us share until we get our reps in, we're more used to being in the room by ourselves, taking care of the patient, and things start to get a little second nature. So I wouldn't worry too much about doing anything other than focusing on the patient at least for the first couple of weeks or month while you're starting your journey. Yeah, definitely agree with that. The, the intraoperative pre-oping is, is not something I did early CA one year, um, nor do I think it's necessary to do. Um, so Derek, uh, should we start with a sample case, you think? You definitely should, and this time with a better microphone. All right, so let's pretend I'm the attending the night before. Uh, Derek has just let me know that he is ready to pre-op our patient. And for this patient, let's just say I haven't looked the patient up before. So Derek, can you tell me a little bit about our patient and what we're doing for him? 
So this is a typical Stanford trauma patient, very similar to actual patients that I've had before. This is a 60-year-old male. He's one day status post bike versus wild turkey. Um, and he's scheduled for an open reduction and internal fixation of the left femur. He's got no allergies. He's 5'7", uh, 88 kilos, and he's got a BMI of 30. Um, and then just looking forward at some of his past medical history, He's an ASA class three, and we'll go into a little bit more of the medical history to see why he justifies that ASA classification. Um, and as just a point of specificity for the Stanford service, usually these trauma patients are seen in OR19, and they're booked oftentimes with Dr. Bishop, who is one of our trauma surgeons here. So this patient is currently admitted for this overnight hip fracture, um, notably, his systolics have been in the 170s, which is baseline for him. And as typical of a lot of these hip fracture patients who come to Stanford, the regional anesthesia team placed a femoral nerve block and they left a catheter in. So the catheter is hopefully keeping him at a decent pain management level with that local anesthetic infusion. So other past medical history includes hypertension, he is on an ACE inhibitor for that, which he takes daily. Um, he also has a diagnosis of CAD in his chart, but looking a little more in depth, he has no symptoms of any recent angina, either with exertion or at rest. And then he actually has a decent amount of workup as well. He has an EKG showing sinus rhythm with maybe some signs of left ventricular hypertrophy. He had an echo about four months ago that shows normal EF, no valvular deficits. Uh, again, just maybe some evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. And he also actually had an exercise stress test a year ago, which was completely normal. Going along, he also has uh, exercise-induced asthma, and he uses inhaler, but maybe once every three months. He also has a history of non-insulin-dependent diabetes, type 2. Uh, not on any insulin, like I said, just on a little bit of metformin. He has uh, acid reflux, or GERD as well, controlled with a PPI. He's also got OSA, which he wears a CPAP for um, every single night. And notably, he was hospitalized for a brief period of time a year ago with MRSA cellulitis of the right angle after road burn from a fall from his bike. Going along, um, his past surgical history includes a TNA as a child, which there was no complication from. And then just looking at the labs, nothing too abnormal. He has a crit of 30, platelets of 210, creatinine of 0.9, and INR of 1.1. And then just looking at all the other available labs and imaging, completely unremarkable other than the already existing films showing that he has a complex fracture of the left hip. Exam-wise, all I have to look at, uh, since it is the day before the procedure, is the ED exam, and it doesn't look like there's anything too significant on that other than some pain whenever he moves his left leg. So Alex, just kind of going along with all the information that I presented, what things are you thinking about just based on this patient's history? 
Yeah, so thanks for that history, Derek. And now just, just taking a step back to talk about, in, in general, pertinent parts of the history. Um, for anyone with chronic medical diseases, you want to know their medication history. Um, so specifically for his hypertension, knowing what medications he takes, that he was on an ACE inhibitor, and then in the morning you can verify if he held that or not, um, because that'll have implications for your anesthetic plan. And for all these different perioperative medications, there's actually a chapter in your CA1 tutorial notebook um, that goes through some of the broad strokes about perioperative medication management and holding or given meds perioperatively. Um, for CAD, most important is symptoms and any recent um, provocative imaging. So this guy is a stress test, so we can be pretty reassured um, that he does not have any um, inducible ischemia. And we also want to know um, if he ever had a cath or had a PCI before, because that'll have implications as well. For patients with asthma, COPD, or other reactive airway disease, we sometimes will give uh, pre-op uh, nebulized medications to prevent the incidence of bronchospasm and laryngospasm. For diabetic patients, we'll want a pre-op blood glucose, um, and we actually have an algorithm at Stanford to go over uh, intraoperative blood sugar management and uh, insulin titration. And then a few other things. For patients with GERD, we want to know how severe their symptoms are, if they're able to lie flat, and if there's uh, any risk for needing uh, rapid sequence induction and intubation. And then for patients with OSA, we need to keep in mind that they're often very sensitive to narcotics, so may require some reduced doses compared to a patient without OSA. Awesome. Now it's uh, my time to be the attending, so I'm going to ask you, what's your anesthetic plan, Alex? Sure. So uh, for this ASA3 patient getting an open reduction and internal fixation of his femur fracture, my plan is general anesthesia two large bore peripheral IVs, standard monitors, and plus or minus an A-line. Um, I would place an A-line uh, given the patient's age, um, his high blood pressure, and wanting to keep his pressures within uh, you know, 10 to 20% of his normal ranges. And it could also be useful for drawing labs um, given that the patient is a diabetic. Though I don't know if it's strictly necessary given that the patient is mostly otherwise healthy and does not have any symptoms from his coronary artery disease. Um, Pre-induction, I'd consider uh, midazolam, one to two milligrams IV, um, based on if the patient is anxious, keeping in mind that he is 60 years old. Uh, my plan for induction would be uh, fentanyl, followed by propofol and rocuronium. Um, my airway plan would be direct laryngoscopy, um, intubation with an endotracheal tube, um, and maintenance with sevoflurane. For pain control, um, we can use uh, fentanyl, hydromorphone, Tylenol, and at Stanford we also often use ketamine for these patients. Um, my plan would be to extubate awake in the operating room um, with the plan to go to the floor afterwards. Other considerations for this case are patient positioning. Um, patients uh, may be supine but are often bumped uh, laterally uh, to assist with uh, surgical exposure, so keeping that in mind for positioning. Um, and then for some of these uh, trauma case cases, um, you want to at least have a type and screen, if not a type and cross, um, given concerns uh, for blood loss during the operation, though this patient is starting uh, with an adequate uh, hematocrit. Um, and then the only other thing I might add is that um, for orthopedic cases, surgeons will often require uh, pretty deep levels of paralysis. Um, so we'll want to have a twitch monitor available and ready in the room to titrate our um, neuromuscular blockers uh, intraoperatively. 
Um, any additional comments or concerns there? Yeah, I'll add that sometimes for ortho cases, um, whether it be a fracture, repair, um, reduction in fixation, or more commonly for complete joint replacements, the ortho surgeons will like some doses of TXA as well, um, just to decrease any sort of oozing or blood loss that might be incurred throughout the procedure. So it's always nice when I know I'm gonna be in an ortho room, I always go to the pharmacy and pick up a couple vials of the TXA. This way I have it when they ask for it. And if I don't, I can always return the vials back to the pharmacy. Um, before I go on, I also wanna say, as the attending, Alex, fantastic job with the plan. I completely agree, and I think that's what we, we, sh we should do tomorrow. Excellent, looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> and now speaking as Derek the resident, I think that um, even if you do come up with a plan that's totally reasonable and is gonna get the patient completely safely through the procedure, oftentimes attendings will have certain ways or other points or sometimes other teaching things that they wanna go through. And sometimes they'll have oftentimes a lot of alterations to your plan. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your plan is a bad one. It just means that there are many different ways of doing things um, and then I think at first when I was starting to present plans as a CA1, whenever the attending had a different idea, I would always take that as my plan was completely wrong. What was I thinking? Like, why did I even suggest that? When really now with a little bit of experience, a lot of times it's just that certain attendings like to do things a certain way. Would you agree, Alex? Yeah, I, th I think that that can't be said enough. Uh, flexibility is definitely the name of the game. Um, anesthesia is both art and science and I think uh, your job in residency is just to learn as many different ways of doing something as you can and doing it safely um, to kind of take those tools um, once you graduate as an attending and choose kind of your anesthetic plan um, but certainly in the the preoperative evaluation and the discussion with the t attending um, can be a time to ask uh, some questions but I, I don't think you want to come across as controversial or uh, argumentative because you want to kind of set the tone for the day, the day before, yeah. that you're someone who is flexible, easygoing, easy to work with. And then I think um, that allows you when there's downtime uh, during the case the next day to ask about, oh, you wanted to use a glide scope instead of direct laryngoscopy for this patient's airway. Can you talk to me about uh, certain cases when you would make that decision and why you make them? And I think that just makes for a really nice uh, intraoperative uh, OR day. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, when you're just starting out, the attendings have literally no expectations about your plan being reasonable or not. I think the most important thing is just keeping an open mind, being flexible, being open to feedback, and having the plan changed up at a moment's notice. And even though the first couple times you present to the attending, and I remember feeling this way as a CA1 too, just being faced with having to call the attending, having no idea like what my plan would even be, and just fumbling through a plan, as long as you put in some effort into looking up the patient and have some kind of ideas, you just gotta shoot your shot. You just gotta put something out there, <laughs> And sometimes the attending will say, those are great ideas, and sometimes they'll say, well, there are a lot of considerations. I, I even remember specifically my first week on CA1 during my tutorial month, I remember we were doing some sort of back mass excision, and it was really deep, it was like way beyond the muscle. 
And I remember thinking to myself, you know what, I think this would be a great idea for a Mac. And I remember shooting my shot, presenting that to my attending the night before, saying, I think we could Mac this patient. Like, this patient should be able to tolerate it. And then being faced with what seemed like five minutes of silence, when really it was probably <laughs> only about five seconds, uh, when my attending said, no, this mass is way too deep, this patient's gonna need paralysis, and we shouldn't Mac this patient. So sometimes we'll have moments like that, and that's totally to be expected, and it's all part of the learning process. And sometimes you still have those moments. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that feeling does not go away even into CA3 year. And, but I think at this point, we're just so used to it, we're just like, okay, um, we'll change up the plan. I'm agreeable to that. Yeah, yeah. No, no attending will expect you as an early CA1 to know the ins and outs of every plan, but they want you to have a plan. You shouldn't be calling them to ask them, what are we going to do tomorrow? Um, I think you could, that can get there eventually, um, but certainly no one expects you to have everything right uh, off the bat or, or, or even kind of uh, toward the, towards the middle of the year because you're going to be doing different types of cases. There are still cases as a CA3 that I haven't done yet that I'll ask my attending, um, this is what I think we should do and that I would like to do, but to be honest, I haven't done this case before, so please uh, steer me in the right direction if I'm wrong. Exactly, and one of the most important resources are your fellow residents too. I can't overstate the amount of times in our group chat someone was like, I've never done this kind of case before. I have no idea what I'm doing. All the please time. help me. And then you have a bunch of other people, either from your own class, or from other classes chime in and give you some ideas on how to approach the case and that's always so helpful. And while we're on that, that pre-op etiquette, um, one thing I think is useful to talk about is just how to get a hold of your attending or, or how to start this pre-op conversation. Um, so after I've looked up the patient, um, and sometimes if they're in the hospital, um, and on the sicker side, I'll actually see them the day before just to get a, a, a quick exam, see what drips are on, see what their access is, um, if I have the chance. Um, usually I'll start with a text. And I'll text them saying like, hey, this is uh, Alex Rodriguez. I'm one of the new CA1s. I see we have a case together tomorrow in uh, OR19. It's our first case of, of three cases of the day. Um, please call or text me whenever you would like to discuss. As a CA1, nearly everyone will call you back at some point. Um, but as you progress through your residency, some of those uh, will change to texting. And some attendings, after you work with them several times, um, you'll know that it's okay just to text them an anesthesia plan. I think initially as a CA1, and some attendings even still, um, will want you to discuss the plan um, over the phone or even in person if you're there at Stanford, if you can catch them the same day. Um, just to go over any nuances or, or any questions uh, that might arise. Would you agree with that, Derek? Do you do something similar? Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's very reasonable, at least for the first half, if not more, of CA one year to just shoot a text and ask, when is a good time to talk about the plan? Um, and then always assume that there's gonna be a phone call. Later on, I mean, depending on your relationship with the attendings or how comfortable you feel, you can start transitioning into just texting them and seeing what's going on. Um, but I think one of the rules of thumb is I always try and send out a text as early as I can. I think most attendings are going to realize that you've had a really busy day, uh, you've been focused in the OR, then you've had lectures, so you might not even get a chance to look up the next day's patients until later in the day. So it's totally reasonable to call them or text them on the later side. One thing that I would recommend, however, is 
making sure you send that text or setting up a phone call before 8 p.m., would you say? Yeah, it, it, 8 p.m. is usually my cutoff too. And if I know I'm uh, in a late case or on call or, or really busy, usually I'll send them a text around like 5 p.m. saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm still on call or still in, in the OR. I haven't had a chance to look up the patient, um, but I can send you a text uh, when I've done so. Or sometimes they'll respond, you know, if it's a really late day and they're busy too, um, to just talk in the morning, kind of have a, a basic anesthesia plan. But definitely I would let them know on the earlier side if you're not going to be sending out that formal ready to pre-op text. For sure. One other thing that was really daunting to me as a CA1 was how to talk to patients. Um, of course, we all have so much experience talking to patients during med school, um, during intern year, but how to talk to patients in the pre-op area. Um, so it's a little different from being on medicine and going down to the ED, having chart reviewed them and talking to them to be ready to admit them. So Alex, what would you say is kind of your spiel in terms of what you do like the morning or the day of? Yeah, so when I go to see the patient in the morning, usually I have a few goals. One is just to get the, to know the patient, to establish rapport, uh, to make them reassured that I'm going to be safe uh, and effective in performing their anesthetic. want to rule out any contraindications to our anesthetic plan or to the surgical plan. Um, and then also to learn a little bit about their medical history, um, who's their decision maker, uh, and what their code status is, because that can certainly be important for some patients. Um, so usually I'll introduce myself by saying, hey, my name's Dr. Rodriguez. I'm one of the anesthesia doctors that'll be taking care of you today. I'll usually mention that I'm working with another anesthesia doctor and I'll say who the attending is and that they will come by and introduce themselves either in the pre-op bay or just before they go to sleep. Um, I'll ask them uh, what surgery they're having today and verify that uh, is the same one that we have consent for. Um, I'll ask them their NPO status, so when's the last time they had anything to eat or drink, any allergies that they have and what the reactions are, um, and any medications that they took both this morning and any medications that they take in general, because that'll often open up the conversation to other medical history. I'll ask them if they have any heart or lung problems. Uh, you'd definitely be surprised on what you can pick up on a morning exam that is not in the chart. Um, and any problems with prior uh, anesthetics, um, any problems with post-operative nausea and vomiting. Um, some patients will have had awareness under anesthesia, very rare, but something we want to know about. And some will uh, have a known difficult airway um, and we'll have been told about it uh, after their anesthetic and their surgery that we certainly want to know about. And then um, lastly, I'll just uh, get informed consent uh, for our anesthesia plan. At Stanford, it's a verbal consent, but I'll talk about the risks of anesthesia. I'll talk about the different types of anesthesia, that I will keep them asleep the whole time, I will keep them safe the whole time, I will keep their pain controlled both during the operation and into the recovery area that I will give them medications to prevent nausea and vomiting, but that's often uh, can be associated with anesthesia, and that they might wake up with a sore, float, sore throat if I'm doing a general anesthetic. I also mentioned for MAC that um, feeling people move or hearing voices or sounds is normal and is not awareness, um, because that can be very distressing to some patients thinking that they were awake under anesthesia. So certainly just explaining the different types of anesthesia. Um, and then again, talking about the risks of anesthesia, that anesthesia is very safe, um, but uh, things can happen, um, risks of uh, MIs, strokes. I don't mention that to every patient, but certainly to the higher risk ones or people that I'm worried about. 
And I do want to know um, who is the patient's decision maker um, if they're under anesthesia or otherwise unable to make decisions, who should I call and what's their phone number and then also their code status because uh, you'll need to discuss that uh, before they go to the operating room. I really like the way you structured that, Alex. I feel like I do a lot of the same stuff um, and it is nice to be able to talk to the patient in the morning, kind of get an idea about what their concerns are about anesthesia as well. I honestly think that's one of the more satisfying parts about the job is taking a patient who's really anxious about this new procedure that they're getting and kind of at least be able to answer their questions and being able to be a calming presence and a caring presence in this time that is justifiably really stressful for them. One thing that uh, I especially liked that I do as well is asking them about their MPO status up front as well as confirming that I'm talking to the right patient, um, introducing myself, asking them their name, asking them what procedure they're getting. Because honestly, a lot of the time, I've had procedures just completely stop because the MPO status is um, not correct. Like they may have had like a huge breakfast two hours before, mm -hmm. which would prevent them from getting a purely elective procedure first thing in the morning. So already if you get that answer where they're like, well, doc, I, I had a uh, breakfast of steak and eggs, my usual breakfast, and it was absolutely delicious. You can almost stop the conversation right there because you know you're not doing anesthesia on this purely elective case first thing in the morning. Great point. Great point. Um, the other thing I didn't talk about is um, what do we look for on exam in the morning? Um, when, how are we assessing these patients um, before we uh, put them under anesthesia? Yeah, um, so what the exam entails is gonna be very different from what you're used to doing from like a medicine or a surgery standpoint. A lot of it has to do with the airway. So I can walk a little bit uh, through that. So for example, this patient, we examine him in the morning before the procedure and he's a malampati too. And he's actually able to extend his lower teeth um, above his uh, upper teeth. Well, one way that I like to ask patients to do this is pretend they have an underbite and put their lower set of teeth above their upper set of teeth. And sometimes that doesn't get the point across and sometimes I will show them with my own mouth how to do that, how to do that prognath motion. And that's important because oftentimes it can be a predictive factor in how easy it is going to be to bag mask someone when they're off to sleep and it can also be a predictive factor in how easy you anticipate the intubation being as well. Next, that I see this patient has a neatly trimmed beard and mustache. Again, I note this just because if, they're, if the patient has a really thick beard, it's gonna be really hard to create an adequate seal with the mask. So in a lot of situations where I notice someone has a really thick, unkempt beard, I'll kind of take a note of that and anticipate a situation where once they're off to sleep that they might be a little bit more difficult to bag mask just because of the difficulty in creating a seal. Um, I also take a look inside the mouth and notice that there's no loose teeth or dentures, which is nice. Um, always, if someone has a really loose tooth, and oftentimes this can be the case in peds as well, is that uh, when you're going in with the blade, that's even more risk of knocking something loose and potentially an object for aspiration. But in this case, we're really relieved because he has no loose teeth uh, or dentures that come out. Um, another thing is the thyromental distance. 
So this is the case where I put some fingers uh, just posterior to the, uh, the chin, just to see how much space there is. And generally we like to see either three or more finger prets from uh, the distance of the thyroid cartilage to uh, the chin, just to ensure that the airway is not too anterior. So in this case, this patient's uh, thyromental distance is just one finger breadth. So that could be potentially, and it's not always the case, this could potentially be a risk factor for someone having a more anterior airway than anticipated. Um, and then again, what I usually do is I, I'll palpate the neck or the trachea. Almost all the time there's no masses on palpation, but there have been rare occasions where I've picked up some strange masses um, or the trachea is not exactly midline, and then they'll let me know of some procedure that they had done that could affect getting the airway once they're off to sleep as well. And just like Alex mentioned, the heart and lung sound exam is very similar to what you're used to uh, coming out of intern year. And luckily for us, there's nothing out of the ordinary. He has a regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs, and the lung sounds are clear, no wheezing, no crackles, anything like that. And one thing that I will ask them is that if they have any previously existing neurodeficits, like if they, if the diagnosis of CVA or stroke was in their chart, do they have some residual sensation or motor deficits? Because oftentimes patients will wake up and you'll notice uh, the PACU nurse will tell you, oh, they're not moving their left arm very well. And it'll be almost a lifesaver, very helpful to know that, oh, actually that was a pre-existing thing that didn't happen when they were off to sleep. Yeah, the, I think the, the neuro exam is definitely something really good to, to mention for pre-existing deficits, especially if you're undergoing more high-risk procedures like any um, carotid surgeries or, or cardiac surgeries or anything like that. I'll also mention, just like Derek does, I always ask for any um, foreign bodies or foreign materials in your um, mouth or anywhere else. I, glasses, contacts, hearing aids, dentures, those are all good to remove um, preoperatively and hopefully not after you've induced anesthesia. Um, I have a rule that if, if the patient is going prone, they get their beard shaved um, because otherwise the tape will not stick um, and you definitely don't want the tube coming out uh, yes. when they're face down. Um, and I, I also, one of the attendings at the VA actually taught me this, I, I always feel the neck um, for where I would perform a cricothyrotomy. I've never had to do one, nor do I hope I ever have to do one, but it's certainly something we all train on. Um, and I feel like the number of necks you feel, um, the more that you, that you can do that, the more comfortable you're going to be with identifying that in an emergency. And certainly if you didn't identify a pre-op, it's going to be a lot harder to identify it um, if that were uh, uh, to occur. Um, the last thing I'll mention um, as part of the airway exam, also uh, range of motion of the neck. Some patients' um, airway will look fine, but you'll ask them to when they will have uh, cervical fusion or something like that and not be able to um, move their neck really at all. And that's often one of the first airway maneuvers you'll perform if you're having difficulty um, visualizing the glottis. Um, but otherwise, uh, we're getting towards the, the tail end of the podcast. and. Um, I want to see if um, there's anything that you're looking forward to, Derek. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked me that. It's kind of crazy to think now that we're CA3s because now thinking about you guys, the CA1s coming in, I still remember being a CA1 and it really did not seem like that long ago. So it's kind of crazy to me how fast this whole training process goes 
and that I'll be done with residency in a year. So I think I'm looking forward to the most this year, kind of getting a, a sense of what kind of style I'm gonna have. I've had the opportunity to see a lot of stuff just by virtue of being in this program and getting to rotate all over the place. So I'm excited to try a lot of the things that I've learned, get a little bit more autonomy, and kind of figure out what kind of attending uh, that I'm gonna be. Uh, one other personal thing that I'm very excited about is that uh, I have a long weekend scheduled. Uh, after all this clock, a long weekend scheduled in September, and I'm taking my wife to Yosemite for the first time. Uh, and that's another benefit of being out here. I originally grew, out, grew up in Indiana, so we didn't have all of this ocean, mountains, in such close proximity as we do now. And the fact that Yosemite is just like a four or five hour drive away is absolutely crazy. And I'm very excited to take my long weekend, go out there, do some camping, do some hiking, see if we're lucky enough to do, lucky enough and in shape enough to do that. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a fellow Midwesterner, certainly one of the, the many perks of, of living in the Bay Area. Um, more proximally, I'm looking forward to golfing at the Stanford Golf Course tomorrow night after my shift. I'm on, I'm on call both Saturday and Sunday uh, on OB for the weekend. It's my little pre-call uh, a treat uh, before heading into the weekend at the beautiful Stanford Golf Course. Um, and then this year, so I'm one of the combined residents, so I have two more years left in my residency. Um, but this is kind of the time when I start thinking about fellowship. Um, and uh, what I'd like to do for my anesthetic practice, where I might like to end up, um, and just kind of starting that whole process, which is uh, uh, really exciting, uh, is, is a little bit uh, uh, daunting, um, but definitely something that I'm looking forward to, and that I'm very happy that I went to Stanford now that I'm beginning that process. That's awesome, and I've heard the Stanford golf course is truly a treat to play on. I've never even attempted it because I would need to bring at least 60 balls with me <laughs> to be able to make it through a full 18, but I hear it's it's really, really something else. I've heard Tiger Woods came up on that course. Yes, yes, he, he, he certainly did. I, I, I can't claim um, any of the, even 1% of the, the Tiger Woods skill, but it's a, certainly an, an open invitation to any of the anesthesia residents. If they ever wanna go, there's a, a great residency discount, so it's an open invite. Awesome. Well, Alex, do you have any parting words or thoughts or words of encouragement for the new CA1s? <laughs> I think if I look, think back to CA1, I just remember being tired all the time and that, go <laughs> and that goes away. So um, feeling tired at the end of an OR day and having to go to lecture and to learn about your patients and the next anesthetic is very tiring and daunting. Um, and that doesn't last. So I, I would just say that there is light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to learn so much in these first few months. Um, and just uh, in, enjoy it. Just kind of soak up all of this knowledge. Everyone is here to help you, and no one expects that you know how to do anything. So just enjoy it. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. As a CA1, I remember it being so much fun, but also some of the most exhausting days that I ever had in residency just because there's so much to remember. I remember just the thrill of successfully intubating someone and putting the tube in the right place and not goosing it and feeling amazing. And then thinking to myself, oh wait, there's like 50 other things that I have to do. I mean, there are gonna be plenty of instances where you get that procedure and you're really happy about it, but then you forget to turn on the vent or you forget to turn on the anesthetic and that's totally okay. These are things that have happened to everybody and that's why 
um, you're one-on-one -on -one with an attending for the first month. So it's all part of the learning process. But we are very excited to have all of you here starting your anesthesia journey finally after what must have been a long year. Oh my goodness, I remember at the end of my intern year being so ready for anesthesia, <laughs> but you made it. So some of us still enjoy internal medicine, but that we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll leave that for another podcast. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for having me, Derek. Uh, it's been great. Um, hopefully we'll have a few more episodes uh, in the, the pipeline. Um, give us some feedback on what you guys liked uh, and, and didn't like, but otherwise uh, I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. And good luck and reach out to either of us, any of the uh, upper level residents. We are happy to chat with uh, any of you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Alex, and for everybody listening. Thank you for spending what little free time that you have listening to us chat. See you in the ORs. Bye.